Hi, I'm Lisa Morton and welcome to We Built the City. This is the podcast about those Mancunians born, bred and adopted who are the legacy builders. And one of the many ways that adopted Mancunians come here to build that legacy is through the universities. I've been walking around the city the past few weeks and seeing young people in their graduation robes with proud family members alongside them. Manchester is a place where young people come to find their feet and then fly. At the time of this release, the current Chancellor of the University of Manchester, Lem Cisse, is about to hand over to his successor, Nazir Afzal. Lem has been Chancellor for the past seven years and he's brought such energy and joy to the role. Lem himself was drawn to Manchester after an incredibly difficult upbringing. He found his feet here thanks to what he calls his Manchester miracle. He may not have attended university as a young man, but he's certainly a graduate of Manchester. Lem's story is incredibly compelling, and I wanted you to hear it because I think it's a great example of how this city can help mould you at one of the most formative times of your life. And especially for Lem, because like I said, he had a particularly difficult time when he was younger. I grew up about... 10 miles outside of Manchester, 12 miles outside of Manchester in a few small villages. And my book, my memoir, My Name is Why, is about how I arrived in Lancashire and what happened to my mother and what happened to me. I was brought up in children's homes. I was fostered for the first 12 years. For 18 years of my life, the government was my legal parent. So Wigan Metropolitan Council was my was my legal parent. And uh, it's about discovering what really happened to my mum mm. and what really happened to me in those 18 years. Mm. It's absolutely heartbreaking to read that story. And the thing that really impacted me was the fact that you didn't know that your mum had actually written to Wigan to ask if she could have you back. And she'd been told that you were doing fine and that wasn't going to happen. Yeah, and, you know, I wasn't taken into the social services for any other reason than my mother needed some help while she was in this country to study for her education. Mm. Found herself pregnant, was put in a mother and baby's home. Then the social worker said to her, will you sign the adoption papers? And she refused to because she wanted me fostered for a short period of time. Mm. And then um, I didn't see her again. You know, she was wiped from my mind and I was brought up with foster parents for 12 years who said that they were my real parent or said that they were my mum and dad and that my birth mother really didn't want me and she'd rejected me, et cetera, et cetera. And then they put me in children's homes at 12 and then I was held in a series of children's homes and then let go at 18. And it's from that point onwards that I began the search for my for mm. my mum and my family and stuff. I think the deceit was that they had told me that they were my mum and dad forever mm. and that this was mm. my family. And they taught me to say mum and dad. I, I mean, I didn't have words when I went to them. Mm. You know, so that, that was the, the thing that was wrong. I kind of understand that they had their own problems. It's just that they couldn't admit to them. So the foster child became the fall guy for what were some quite serious problems in their own Mm. family and with their own development. Essentially, they were naive. Mm. 
There's a saying, which is, it's ironic actually, but it's, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. They had good intentions, you know, their intentions were to, to help somebody. But the reality um, didn't stack up. For the them. reality didn't stack mm, up. That's something you do take with you for the rest of your life, whether you Well, you, you know, Lisa, therapy's a great thing and it's mm. the best thing I ever did. Mm. Uh, and I don't mean to sort of build a house of cards around your own failings, but I do mean it is therapy is a way of exercising yourself as in physical exercise. It's a, it's a mental exercise in looking at some of these horrible gifts that we've been given of deception and lies from parents. Uh, and again, that's not something that's unique to an adopted person or a fostered person as I was. What was your experience when you realised that day when you got your birth certificate and you saw that your name wasn't Norman, it was Lem? How did that impact you? Well, when I received my birth certificate, I was about 16 and a half, 17 years of age. And I was given my birth certificate because I was going to be leaving the children's homes at 18. When I received the birth certificate and it had my name on it and it had my mother's name on it, that there was proof to me that I had been deceived in some way out of knowing what my name was and out of knowing what my mother's name was. So it was like a a flare, you know, that shone light out into the darkness to say, there's a lot more to this story, Lem, <laughs> than you know. You've got to keep digging to find out the truth. And did you decide that you were going to start digging straight away as Lem? Well, you know, I'm 18. You know what I mean? I'm 18 years of age. Mm. I've, I've, I don't know anybody who's known me for longer than a year and a half because I was in a series of different children's homes. My foster parents would never speak to me, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I'm, I'm sort of in Lancashire in a village. I'm like any 18-year-old in the village. I'm absolutely dying to get out of it. That's just being 18. But I had no relativity. I had an apartment. I had nobody either. I had no mum, dad, sisters, brothers, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, granddad. I had nobody to blame, nobody who cared enough to feel responsible for my uh, anger or confusion at what had happened to me. And one of the greatest gifts I was given was just a teeny bit of insight. And I remember thinking then, so this isn't me reassessing 18-year-olds. This is what I thought then. I thought, if there are 99 people in this village who are not good, and there's one who is good, then if I move to the city, there might be 198 people who are not good, but there'll be two that are. That that kind of logic. But I also wanted to find out who I was and what was what what was I relative to. And I knew I couldn't do that in the little village that I was brought villages that I was brought up in. And Manchester had always been glinting on the horizon across the Lancashire Plain. I could actually I could actually see it from the the what's called the Pretoria Hills yeah. uh, in Atherton, which is the final village that I was brought up in. And people always spoke about Manchester as being a place where you can get mugged and they talked about Moss Side as a very terrible place. 
without acknowledging that Manchester City football ground was right at the heart of Moss Side. <laughs> Thousands of people came from all over the country to go to Moss Side, but nobody made that connection. They were quite happy to tell the stories of muggings and blah, blah, and destitute housing and that kind of thing. But they weren't willing to say, well, actually, you know, my, my uncle goes there every Saturday. <laughs> to watch football it's funny how the narrative of a city can be shaped and the more people that believe it the more people that don't contest it it's incredible um i'd run away to manchester when i was in Atherton. i ran away barefoot gosh to, did you? yeah to manchester i remember i slept outside of it wasn't murray's records in moss side there was another record shop and i slept outside of i slept outside of that <laughs> When you were in a teenager? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, walked up the East Lanks Road. No Google Maps then, right? No, absolutely. Walked up <laughs> the East Lanks straight Road. straight line. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a pretty straight line, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. The East Lanks Road, that's sort of, it's like a Roman road, isn't it? Straight yeah. between Liverpool and Manchester. Manchester, yeah. So Manchester was this giant mountain with a really amazingly powerful torch on the top of it you know a flame and it sort of drew me your first book of poetry which you published yourself didn't you yeah. paid for was it by cleaning gutters you managed yeah to yeah yeah cleaning gutters in Allerton. great story yeah yeah as had gutter cleaning service <laughs> i had a car washing round from eight and i never i never got any more pocket money after that so i, I yeah. cleaned cars and you were cleaning gutters that book of poetry you said was your bridge to manchester yeah, what did you yeah, mean by that yeah well I, I brought it to manchester i did my first reading because of it at the abyssindi cooperative in moss side i took it to common word which was a community publishing house in manchester mm. because you know all of these events and venues and stuff they don't happen without a groundswell of energy and respect for grassroots whether it's grassroots music whether it's grassroots poetry and stuff and this was a common word was a grassroots organization whose job was to promote support and encourage writers who otherwise wouldn't be published women writers gay writers black writers working class writers specifically and in fact the working class nature actually goes through all of those different those different uh, sort of uh, definitions and so i went into common word i took my book with me and within a year i was working as a literature development worker in common word i applied for a job and i got it mm. but what i had was boundless energy absolute focus and I was committed you could see that in the book you know so I took that to the job interview and I got the job and, and years later I looked back at the inside the filing cabinet which looked, looked at all of the other applicants and they were all degree this degree that university of this and I had none of that mm. you know so it's kind of like a, for me it was a Manchester miracle <laughs> you know it really was I had nothing man except yeah. for who I was and what I believed. Which shone out, obviously, yeah. you know, against those CVs, isn't it? And that's what Manchester's about, isn't it, yeah. surely? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that, it, proved, it proved itself to me to be about that. And <sighs> and people encouraged me to do live gigs as well. And, and sort of like, so, if, you know, one day it was the 
Mosside Library and the Abyssindi Cooperative, which is a cooperative of black black women, basically, right in the heart of Manchester. It was pretty damn radical. And then it, you know, then it was the Free Trade Hall and it was the anti-apartheid events at the Town Hall and at the, oh, there's a place on College Road in Wally Range. It's, it's a miners. It's like a looks beautiful building. It's where the unions were anyway. There were all these events the trade union uh, place on in uh, near Harter Street off Princess Road. All of these places which have a history. It's great to hear Lem reminisce about the places that welcomed him with open arms when it came to performing as a young man in Manchester. Lem was here at such an exciting time in the city's history and he was surrounded by so many creative people who also went on to become incredibly successful. It was John Thompson, Henry Normal, Johnny Dangerously, I Am Clue, Carolina Hearn, Steve Coogan. We came across each other constantly. Mm. But for me, anyway, to watch these incredible luminaries appears, you know, just go on to just hit right at the heart of popular culture, yeah. right to this day, you know, yeah. to this time with Steve Coogan, right to this day, is a joy. You know, and then to watch Johnny Dangerously from I Am Clute, you know, rise up with I Am Clute. And then to see your elbows, you know, and to just look at Noel Gallagher and, and Liam and what they did at that time. And so you had all parts of culture all happening, like a major, major firework display. You could almost put your hand on the ground and, and hear bass lines from the night before you know and feel them there was something there really was it. something yeah. and it's good to look back at because i didn't know at the time you've been chancellor of the university of manchester haven't you since 2015 have, yeah. you've made some major changes there what have you enjoyed about what that have i been up to mm. well I, it's a ceremonial role mine so what am i proud of i'm proud of the fact they support the christmas dinners which is for care leavers i'm proud of the equity and merit scholarship scheme which gets scholarships to students from around the world to come to Manchester. I'm proud very much so of being one of the few universities of this stature that is run by a a woman, which is um, not just any woman, actually. It's a scientist, Nancy Rothwell. Nancy, yeah. And basically I'm proud to give degrees to students who've been studying there. How important do you think the University of Manchester is as an institution to kind of represent what Manchester's about? Oh, so much comes from the university and from the uh, Metropolitan University as well. So much talent goes, sort of falls back into the city. You know, I think think about Tom Bloxham, talking about my generation, you know, Tom Bloxham and how he's been part of the development of the city. And I think of the John Thompsons and Steve Coogans who went to... Manchester Met, mm. you know, and Kathy Burks, and the, there's just so many who've fed back into Manchester and then promoted Manchester around the world. You know, I don't think people have to stay in Manchester to be a part of Manchester, and I know that feels counterintuitive, but quite often our children will say, "Well, I want to live in Brisbane." <laughs> yeah. And you know, and we don't say we don't say to them, "Oh no, you've got to live in Manchester if you're from Manchester." <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They they yeah. will go and they will experience the world, but they take it with them. Definitely. You don't sell it down the river; you take it with you. 
<laughs> it's a really great PR job, isn't it? I mean, literally, you can take Export Manchester. And we had an expression in our family, my gran, Roots and Wings. They were kind of referring to both our family, that you give your kids the roots and then you give them the wings. But also, I think that's oh, Manchester. Oh, that's lovely. Mm. Hey, you've got to write that down, man. Yeah. I'll include that in your PR. <laughs> that's brilliant. <laughs> I just love the idea that people who come to Manchester can champion Manchester even after they leave. And that's certainly true for the students who come here and find their feet here just like Lem did. Lem mentioned Cathy Burke earlier, but famously Ben Elton, Rick Mayle and Adrian Edmondson all graduated from the University of Manchester too, as well as Benedict Cumberbatch. There are a fair few guests who've appeared on We Built This City who've reminisced about their times here as students too. Lem talked about Tom Bloxham, who came to Manchester to study politics and modern history at the university. And it was here that Tom went from selling posters to quite literally building the city. I thought I'd had sort of a bit of an entrepreneurial um, zeal in me, zest in me. And I'd sort of been going to jumble sales as a kid and buying, um, looking for... I was always the first one in the jumble sales, like car boot sales today. I was the first one in looking for the gold and silver jewellery. And I came back last and bought all the penguin and puffin books I had left over. And so made a bit of money doing that. And I'd always been sort of buying and selling stuff and wanted to do something. So with my first student grant check, and in those days we were lucky enough to get grant checks, I bought a load of records to sell. But I was absolutely crap at that. And I made the mistake of following very crude market research, which was the charts. And this was 1983. Mm. At the time, Wham! was top of the singles, top of the albums. You know, the only correlation between the two charts. And, of course, no students want to buy that. So I was crap at doing that. And I slowly got, got to learn. But what I realised was all the students had bare breeze block walls. They all wanted posters. And most of the posters you could buy then were actually pretty naff. And they were uh, my glossy pictures of Michael Jackson or that tennis player showing her bum. And all <laughs> my that. mates were into <laughs> Bob Marley and Joy Division and The Clash and the you know, punk stuff. And they wanted really cool posters. But the record companies were actually giving away posters for nothing. The idea was you'd buy 100 records, you'd take one poster and stick the poster up in your wall. And I sort of went in there, bought five um, records, stole a few posters <laughs> or borrowed a few posters and gradually got into posters. And I started dealing with the record companies, with you know, any way I could, I'd be buying posters, buying posters and selling posters. And eventually I built that up into quite a big business and I was in the right place at the right time and we got licensing deals with the Happy Mondays and the Stone Roses and James and most of the Manchester bands and we were shipping them all around the world uh, wholesaling them to all the shops but I realised that actually you could export a poster for 50p you could wholesale it for £1.15 but you needed sales reps and everything else but you could retail it for £3 mm. so I said I needed to get a shop and so I went around all the shops in Manchester uh, knocking on the doors uh, going to the estate agents and none of them, they all gave me short shrift. So I got this great business. I said, yeah, but where's your um, where's your accounts, Tom? We want to see three years worth of accounts and we'll have a look at Covenant. Now, I thought Covenant was where nuns lived, but it's a <laughs> convent apparently. Uh, I had none of those. And um, But eventually I found a very small place in Affleck's Palace. But actually, so I started in there, but somebody else had got the franchise to sell posters. I go and sell postcards. But even so, I made a success selling postcards. And then I kept hassling and hassling and hassling for more space. And next door, 6,000 square feet came up on the first and second floor, which became FLEX Arcade, actually, mm -hmm. and we developed that. Um, from Chris Oglesby's uh, father, partner, actually, was what, what became Pumpwood as a firm that owned it. Um, and then it was too big to sell posters, 6,000 square feet, so sublet the space. Ended up making more money from subletting the space than I did from selling the posters. And thought, hey, I must be into property. <laughs> 
and then started buying other buildings um, in Liverpool called Liverpool Palace. And in the meantime, I'd sort of set up a chain of um, bars called Bar Bar, that some of you listeners may have been to, a nightclub called Home in Manchester, and various other things. But gradually, I got more and more focused on property, and I realised that there was a real need for initially creative industries. And what had happened at the time is Manchester was still being refurbished, and typically, as a building became empty, they would let it on short-term lets to a load of creative industries. And I had a lot of friends who were designers into the music business and they wanted space, but they couldn't sign a 10-year lease or 25-year lease. They just wanted to go in and get a space. And the only place they could do it was in buildings about to be knocked down. So they kept getting moved on and mm. moved on and moved on. So I thought, well, actually, this is a good market. And, um, you know, it's actually very, very similar to what WeWork is today or the Bondi yeah. Warehouse where we're speaking from. And so we set up a building called Juicy House in Manchester. We bought it very cheaply. Um, the building was going to be demolished because the people who owned it thought there was no use, thought it was a Victorian building they'd never let, and it was going to be knocked down. And we bought it very cheaply, and we got um, Simpson Huff, um, Ian and Rachel, one of mm. their first schemes to come and refurbish it. And then we filled, I think, 808 State with the first tenants and simply read and asked property and UK Fask and ANS Software, and loads of great Manchester brands uh, came in out of that building, but a cafe downstairs and a nightclub, and it became a real hub for many years of um, Manchester's creative industries. Mm. Manchester's creative industries, sports and the nightlife are huge draws for the young people coming to the city. Our still relatively new leader of Manchester City Council, Bev Craig, came here as a student, partly because she'd seen it on the telly. So I'd never been to Manchester before. Um, I'd seen it on the TV. And I decided from quite an early age that I wanted to leave. So I grew up just outside Belfast, about eight miles outside. It's a place that nobody's ever really heard of. It's just a standard kind of built in the 50s, 60s council estate where you move people out Belfast. Um, So I decided quite early on that actually I wanted to leave Northern Ireland. So when it came to university, applying for unis, I went through the list kind of scratched off anything that was Oxford, Cambridge or London and worked down the next five. Probably sounds terribly arrogant, but then at the time, I just really liked the draw of Manchester. So probably two things for me. One was football in Northern Ireland, massive football fans. Um, and then the second, I was of the age of watching Queer's Folk. So hiding in my bedroom, watching something unquiet, and I thought, well, actually, it's got a good university and it looks like a fun place to be. And then I moved here. And I think it was it was quite transformational for me, really. So I suppose that's why the city's got stuck with me ever since. Amazing. And what about the football? Well, what can you say? <laughs> um, I think it was probably it was less of a, a massive football fan and more just the culture of sport, mm. music, and a good night out that mm. drew me in, rather than an avid football supporter that went to all the games. And, and you know, it's been covered a little bit but I'm the, the the not winning at the moment football team so it's, it's even less fashionable. So. And what was Manchester like when you were here as a student what kind of stands out for you? Well I think what student wouldn't talk about kind of the Oxford Road area I think I'd, I'd base myself a bit all over South Manchester so I'd lived in Fallowfield, Withington, lived in Hume for a while. Because I heard you say that um you spent more of your student life trying to change the world and drinking than you did in politics. So what kind of bits, what bits of the world were you trying to change and where, did, where were you drinking? Oh dear, I mean, what was I drinking? That's the question. <laughs> I didn't start my life out political. Coming from Northern Ireland, politics is, is something that a lot of people spend a lot of time avoiding, to be honest. So 
when I was younger, growing up in Belfast, I got involved in probably women's rights, LGBT rights, those those kind of campaigns. So when I came to university, it was primarily about fun. So I had a great time. But then I also got involved in LGBT organisations in the city. And that led me to going... I remember it really struck me. I went to an international conference. So it was LGBT youth organisations from across Europe and the Middle East. And it really struck me that I went away to this conference with people, young people like me from around the world, and the position of privilege that you come from. So I would get to come home. I'd come home to a city like Manchester with my choice of gay bars, restaurants, anything that was on hand. And there was a chap from Lebanon at the time who was there. And he'd just been outed on the front page of, of the national newspaper. So we had to help him seek asylum. And I think, you know, for someone who hadn't really thought much about the rest of the world and was very content in their own sort of happy bubble, that probably shifted the kinds of things that I got involved in. So I ended up running that organisation for a couple of years whilst I was at university. So I spent quite a lot of time in Brussels and Amsterdam also whilst trying to get my degree mm. and sample every bar that was on offer <laughs> in Manchester. So it wasn't just pious and, and worthy the whole time. It's good to hear that Bev managed to play as well as work when she was a student in Manchester. And I couldn't talk about student life in the city without bringing you this little story from the actor and comedian John Thompson, who Len mentioned earlier too. Even though John studied drama here, he was always very careful not to look too much like a student. But you were at uni, was it Manchester Poly? Yeah, mm. but it came full circle. So I was adopted on Parswood Road at Catholic Rescue. Mm. And if you, all the houses that back onto Parswood, all the way, there's no, build, there's no buildings front facing on there. So the next building was Capitol Building. So in right. 18 years, I came full, full circle, circle. Mm. which is like fate, really. So that's where I started and that's why I trained. So that's amazing. But it's sad when I drive past and there's the, the theatre's gone. Mm. Shouldn't have been really, it's listed. It's a backhander, wasn't it? <laughs> Cerebral. Cerebral. Was it the Parswood pub's still there, <laughs> yes. but... So you did drama? Yeah. And what was it like? Was it that was a, a diploma in theatre, then. Right. It's a recognised degree, then. Yeah. But I got a 2-2. But the thing, it doesn't matter. It's, no. where, it's all about whether you work, really. And was what was that like, being a lad in kind of mid-80s... Manchester then, it was kind of, because it was a Didsbury campus, Mm. that's where we were kind of, I didn't really, I wasn't at All Saints, you see. I mean, I went to the Friday Night Bop at the Nelson Mandela building. Yeah. I don't know, what's it called, the Student Union now, uh, for the Metropolitan? Because they were going to call it the Bruce Forsyth building, weren't they? And I just thought, (laughs) you know, if you want kind of like a role model, Bruce is far and away from Nelson. There was talk of, honestly, the Bruce Forsyth building... (laughs) I mean, there's a hoo-ha. My dad went to UMIS and there was a hoo-ha about the Barnes-Wallace building. Really, he was a creator of a <laughs> destructive device that killed people. But, you know, you get into all that kind of those politics. So did you not go into Manchester? No, we used to do the Didsbury 11. Didsbury. Not the Didsbury yes. Dozen. It was 11 yeah. pubs when I was yeah. there. And that was the thing. But we never did 11. We did it once and then there was a lot of people being ill. Yeah, really. You sure. know, it's just like... Uh, so because we were Didsbury based we socialised in Didsbury mm-hmm. and when I went to it was a bit like town mouse country mouse when I went to the Friday night bop at the Polytechnic I hated it mm. it's just too much it felt too like much. a different city then yeah it, it did it was a bit too studenty because mm. I never saw myself as a student mm. some of people buy into a student identity don't they yeah they get the canvas bag that you can write on write your bands on 
they buy a long coat from Jive Hive. Is that still <laughs> still there, Jive Hive, near Johnny Roadhouse? You used to be able to get amazing tootle scarves from there. You know, the silk scarves with the tassels, yeah. tassels on. Jive Hive, it was like, that's where you buy your knackered crombie coat. I must admit, I bought one. Someone said, don't buy one of them. You look like Rick Astley. <laughs> <laughs> I did. did. And Wait, I did. Didn't you see I did and I did. As you've heard from Lem, Bev, Tom and John, Manchester is a proud university city with several institutions that bring thousands of students here year on year who all add to our developing tech and creative industries, our vibrant cultural scene and go on to call Manchester home. One of our values at Roland Ransfield is to leave the company in a better place. As the students celebrate their graduations, it's a great time to reflect on the contributions they make as they form friendships and careers and lives in the city region. Thank you for listening to this special episode of We Built This City. We're taking a little break over the summer, but do listen out for the We Built This City Pride special, celebrating 50 years since the very first Pride in the UK. You can hear that episode on the 25th of August. And if you want to find out more about how Roland Ransfield can help you drive your values and create relationships that build your business success, then head over to rdpr.co.uk. Or you can find us on Instagram at Roland Ransfield or Twitter at RDPR Tweets. Or feel free to give us a call at the office on the same number we've had for 25 years on 0161 236 1122. And in the meantime, don't forget to rate, review and follow We Built The City. Thank you.